Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome to The Blind Spot. This week, I feel so grateful to have Tom Condon here having a conversation with me about the early days of the Enneagram and about how we can use this tool to help people grow and change. So today we're going to focus on some solution-focused approaches to the different Enneagram styles that people have. Many of you know Tom as a longtime teacher and coach. He has an organization called thechangeworks.com, and I'll have an email in the show notes if anybody would like to reach out for him for coaching. Tom has also worked with uh, many teachers, including Russ Hudson, who he has an upcoming offering that's starting on September 29th, and this is what we have learned and how we apply it. And as I was starting with Tom, he was saying, yeah, this is what the old guard is doing with the Enneagram these days and how it's offering it up to those of us that may be a little preoccupied with typing and want to really expand that view into how can we use it? How can we really develop? How can we transcend any of the nitty gritty that we might get into when we're actually a little more fixated on type? And how can we just expand that awareness and actually use this tool to become an increasingly conscious version of ourselves? So how is that, Tom? Did I kind of land on how you're using this tool and what you'd like to talk about today? Well, except for the conscious part, you know, there, uh, there's a tendency to overrate being conscious when you're talking about something that's fundamentally unconscious, when mm. people are reacting out of their Enneagram style, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's without choice if they're overreacting, you might say. Yeah. And I always have trouble talking about types or even styles in, in that they, a lot of what people say is overgeneralized. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, uh, I had no idea. I didn't see this coming. People are individuals. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, even within their Enneagram styles. And so working with somebody as a unique individual, some of the distinctions that the Enneagram makes and the uh, subtypes and uh, uh, wings and connecting points, that's all really useful to me. Uh, also, the Enneagram style of your parents, you carry that with you and react out of it. And if you had a conflicted relationship with a parent, and then you, then it got better. Uh, you have more access to the strengths of their Enneagram style within you. Mm. And, but working with these things, I try not to clutter them up with too much model because mm. I hear about new models all the time, uh, new you know, things that are sort of bolted onto the Enneagram. Some of them really sound interesting and the response I actually always have is, that's interesting. Is it useful? And what I mean by useful is in the service of growing and changing. Mm -hmm. uh, taking the Enneagram, your knowledge of the Enneagram as a kind of lifetime homework assignment. And within that, you know, kind of working away at it. It's a process. And 
within that process, what you're trying to, what I'm trying to work with is the difference between a defensive reaction and a, a sort of natural reaction that would come to you more easily within your Enneagram style. You know, some people have talents and resources and abilities and strengths that are directly related to their Enneagram style. And those can be evoked and applied sometimes to the low side. You know, you can kind of mash them together and find out what the on the low side the person really needs and then whether they can fulfill their own need or, you know, what, what they need to do in order to encourage that or continue their self-education or dip into personal biography and personal history. Uh, a lot of times if people are have a, well, I wouldn't say a lot of times, but about half the time, if people have a spiritual orientation, they may be leaving out the biographical influences, the way in which they're carrying uh, old dilemmas from the past, old pains from the past, old points of confusion or overwhelm, and reproducing them now in the present, in their present life. And that needs to be sometimes brought out. Uh, it, like I said, it depends on the person. But the learning about the Enneagram, learning about your type, learning about your style, learning about uh, some of the other distinctions has a great value up to a point. And then there's the work. And if you have a lot of insight, I think Don Rizzo had a thing he called the insight method. And you can think it's a method and it is helpful and it opens people up and they, they start to catch themselves in the act, for example. They start to self-observe in the Helen Palmer sense, you know, you know, kind of meditate, calm down, get out of your own way. And those are all of value. And then, uh, you know, applying the Enneagram to something that you already know. Like uh, one of your guests was uh, applying the Enneagram to experiences in nature. And there's lots of people doing lots of things with it. You know, it's the cats out of the bag. And in that sense, it's useful to continue to accumulate insight and information and, uh, you know, apply it in whatever way makes sense. Now, the, the, the low side of that is if that's all you do, you'll wind up experiencing change as very slow. <laughs> you know, we all have, uh, you know, lots of people have had bad habits that they had insight into, but it didn't make any difference. They continued on with the bad habit. And so that, that's a consideration. And also the low side of it sometimes is that people start to over-identify with their Enneagram style. And they over-identify with it in a way that they previously, before they knew about the Enneagram, they over-identified with a self-image that uh, was, you know, natural to them or not natural, but uh, common in their experience. And then now they have a new self-image. And it's it's tricky because yeah. you you have to bring honesty to the party. 
yeah. <laughs> and you, you, it, it won't force you to be honest. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of your ego's job to defeat the Enneagram, mm. uh, to, to defang it, to turn it into something else, mm. besides to take away the, the sting of the, the depth of insight that it can offer. Because it's, you know, you know this from working with it. It's as deep as you dare to go. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the practices that you enjoy um, introducing your clients and the people you work with? And what have you found to be really helpful for yourself as you try to get out of these habitual reactions and allow yourself more space to embody more of who you really are? Well, they cluster in different groups, mm-hmm. the practices. And one of them is uh, the standing back part. You know, you could read books about people who are relatively healthy who have your enneagram style for example you know there's there's a kind of uh, conscious studying up that you can do mm-hmm. and then there's another level to it which is going with your enneagram reactions uh going with the passion for example if you 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 start to recognize it in your direct experience which is another emphasis i have on how things look, how things sound, how they feel, how they taste, how they smell, mm. rather than something abstract, mm-hmm. rather than a kind of uh, conceptual framework that those are fine, but they, they recede into the background when you're digging in. And in that digging in, you start to uh, try to get at the unconscious agenda and beliefs and uh, Mario Sakura calls them commitments. You just called them something else. Yeah, I call uh, them unconscious contracts. Yeah, contracts is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you're maintaining a status quo and you're maintaining a, uh, a homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And yet, if there's a bunch, if there's things in that that you haven't dealt with biographically, then they will come up in your relationships, in your your work life, your your relationships to your children, whatever. Yeah. And so those are, you know, that that frequently leads, or maybe not frequently, but some of the time it leads to people becoming motivated to go beyond what they have known and go beyond what they have, you know, go beyond their Enneagram reactions, the automatic ones, the reflexive default reactions. And to dig into, well, what's, you know, what's really driving this? What am I trying to do for myself? What would be three good reasons to keep having this reaction? Mm. And, you know, the person might say, well, there's no good reasons. It's, you know, uh, causing me trouble and alienating my wife. But uh, if you stay with the question, things start to emerge. And the person will say, well, you know, that's funny you should ask that because it reminds me of a time when I was 10 years old and I was fishing with my father, you know, or whatever it is. And uh, working on that, getting the person to recognize how they may be recreating the past in some obscure roundabout left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, that kind of thing where you're, you know, you're reacting unconsciously. and. It's worked up until now. Yeah. So, so there, there's an attachment to an old method of coping. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's uh, attachment is a good word for it too. The person's convinced on some level unconsciously that 
this is the way to do things in the world as I understand it. Uh, and according to my own self-image and who I am within that uh, essentially metaphorical universe, the subjective version of the universe where the the person has, you know, there's the world out there and then there's the person's opinion of the world. And uh, as it was Ralph Emerson, I think, uh, the philosopher, uh, pastor, said, uh, people don't seem to really understand that their their vision of the world is a confession of character. Mm. Yeah. Which I thought was, you know, pretty right there, at least in terms of the Enneagram, you're talking about a a subjective sense of the world that surrounds you and that has worked in certain ways. And in other ways, it might be you might be getting in your own way. Yeah. So there. So digging into that sometimes, sometimes that involves uh, unpleasant feelings. Uh, it involves shadows, you know, going near the aspect of your experience that you push away or suppress or, you know, project. And within those shadows, there's a split. So if somebody is a, a three, they have a, 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 there'll often be a split between who I'm trying to become and who I fear I am. And the the one fuels the other. They travel in pairs. Hmm. Uh, if you're a four, it's got more to do with being ordinary and distinctive, and and yet that's uh, kind of defensive because on another level you're sort of rejecting yourself. And whatever is normal and just kind of uh, you know ordinary and schlubby and human, you know. Yeah, I find it. A useful thing to keep in mind with other styles as well that there's that you're overemphasizing one aspect of your experience possibly and underemphasizing another. Yeah. And in the underemphasizing, sometimes going near the shadow, it's sort of like the third rail in a subway station. Mm -hmm. But uh, sometimes you can go near it and you know touch it for ten seconds or something like that. In fact, I'll do that with sevens where they're. They come right up against a certain kind of pain they've been avoiding, and I um, I make a deal with them. I tell them, uh, well, I want you to experience this for 10 seconds, and then come back out, and I'll tell you a joke. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And well, we do great. it. we do it repeatedly so that there is a bridge built between the person's conscious awareness and then uh, their ability to go near some aspect of their experience that they previously avoided and you know a seven i don't know the terminology about the enneagram gets to me sometimes in terms of the the phrasing in terms of the use of language and to call five sixes and sevens fear types sounds permanent and sounds like a thing it sounds like a a, a steady state it's not uh you know not something you can escape from and I find it a lot more useful to approach it from the standpoint of uh, sixes scare themselves. Mm -hmm. I heard a frame once that I enjoy where we talk about the head center, that these types are sort of working a fear management system. Body types are working an anger management system and image center types are working like a shame or grief management system. How do you like that terminology? Uh, it's too existential. Okay. <laughs> uh, in the sense that 
your your practice of your Enneagram style is a thing you're doing rather than a thing you are. Uh-huh. And so to talk about it like it's a, I don't know, a lot of people believe it's um, genetic. Mm-hmm. I have identical twins in my background, and they, they don't have the same Enneagram style, but they have related ones. Okay. You know, you're born, certainly born with a temperament. And then uh, probably based on what happens to you, you could choose unconsciously, uh, sort of fall into one of three Enneagram styles. When you say they're related styles, what do you mean? They're sharing an arrow or what do you mean by that? Yeah, sharing an arrow, sharing a wing. Yeah. Uh, I think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, just speaking from my own direct experience, when I look at uh, my Enneagram style, um, I... I think I feel like most of my behaviors are of an image center type as a three, but I can also see a lot of the seven that arises within me. And what's been interesting for me is that both of those points have object relations with the nurturing figure. And so I was just curious, do you think that sometimes that's true? Because sometimes people are talking about, they use this term tri-type or tri-fix and I've just been interested in seeing patterns around people who enjoy using these as like a description of their experience. And as I've sort of tried that on, that was sort of a pattern that I saw there. And I guess I was just curious if you see any kind of similar patterns when people tend to have more familiarity with certain styles and certain styles show up less in the personality. I guess I was curious what what you're seeing with that. Uh, Well, you know, it is sometimes useful. The Enneagram is sometimes useful for identifying shadows. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, somebody could be a one and then be polarized against sevens, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Yeah. If uh, everybody went out and played instead of staying home and doing their taxes, what kind of world would this be? There'd be a banking collapse, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but it's it comes back to what, is going on internally in the person. Mm-hmm. This would be more of an intimate subtype, probably uh, approach, but it's got to do with their their individuality. I was trained in NLP and Ericksonian hypnosis. NLP is neuro linguistic programming. Those were all about methods. And back in the early days, like 1980, I came across the Enneagram. And a lot of my friends of mine were therapists, and they would um, they would purloin notes from Enneagram classes and, and duplicate them for me. Mm. And because there were no books, there weren't a it wasn't a book until eighty seven, eighty eight. Did you learn so, with Naranjo, or who did you first learn from? Distributive Grace. I mm. I, I did. Uh, Helen used to put on ten week classes where she would introduce the Enneagram and then do nine panels. And I went to one of those. And I, my roommate at the time had been renting Claudio's house. So there was a, a little bit of a, a connection there. I, I, I met him a couple of times at conferences, but otherwise, no. Mm-hmm. And I, what I thought was, and what has continued actually, especially with the in the early days, people were fighting. They were suing each other. Mm-hmm. They were quarreling like divorcing parents. Don and Helen were. Uh, Don and uh, yeah, Don and Helen. And 
there was a, a middle ground, I thought, where you and I also thought that I'm not going to affiliate with anybody. Instead, kind of dig deeper for what I sensed were useful connections and methods and practices and and ways to understand the self. All of that. You know, it just it seemed like the road was driving. Are you a trained and, psychotherapist? Is that where you're no, no you just no. have you been doing coaching and just using the tool and developing it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm certified oh. as a coach and then also a um uh NLP practitioner too. Got it. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, no, not my understanding of NLP is that it's it provides us tools for uh, settling the nervous system such that we can approach things that may be challenging for us to deal with. Is that a reasonable summary? Or how would you help listeners who are not familiar with this approach or where it fits in to understand better? There's two versions of NLP. One is kind of obnoxious and sociopathic and glib. <laughs> and, <laughs> Which and one do you use, one? Tom? <laughs> <laughs> That's always the next question. <laughs> uh, and the other one has to do, especially applied to something like the Enneagram, is a, a whole cluster of techniques that were uh, gleaned from the study of effective psychotherapists back in the day. And also a, a way of understanding behavior in terms of patterns, and especially in terms of the senses. So that if somebody is having an Enneagram reaction, they're an eight and they just got mad at somebody. One of the things you might zero in on is what uh, what was happening right before that? Right and before you got angry? Right before you got angry. And what you start to find with that line of questioning is that there's a sequence. Mm-hmm. In NLP, they call it a strategy, but it's a series of sensory steps. It's like the architecture of behavior. And in in that architecture, there's areas where you can intervene, for example. And instead, maybe you could have somebody go into the depth of a feeling that they came across uh, for 10 seconds, and then they come out and you tell them a joke. Or they could interrupt the pattern, you know, like they're a four and they're self-studied and they start to realize they're sinking into a mood. That's the time to go for a walk in the park or in nature, or, you know, take your journal with you and write down everything you appreciate about your life right now, mm. that kind of thing. That's and so you're going against it, you know, yeah. you're, you're, but in the, uh, and that's not always feasible, but a lot of times it's kind of useful. And I, you can do homework assignments and behavioral tasks that, uh, yeah. that support that as well. Well, and I know that we wanted this podcast to give a gift to everyone around something that they might do when they're starting to notice that this pattern's arising. So you just gave some tips for point four. Would you like to take a brief spin around the wheel and give a tip on how this might manifest and what you might advise for each type so we can get a taste of what this, how you work with it in this way? Well, one of the ways I understand it is in terms of a split, like I said. And where there's, you know, you're you're overemphasizing an aspect of your experience and you're trying to get away from an aspect of your experience. So if you're an eight, you could believe that you are protecting yourself by oppressing yourself and bullying yourself and kind of squashing your sensitivities because mm-hmm. you have a view of the world in which those are not welcome 
and if not dangerous. You know, one of the things that is in this work is listening for metaphors that people use. And you can hear eights say things like, uh, somebody I knew said, well, I'm, you know, getting older. I'm like a broken down tank. Mm. And there will be sometimes war references uh, in an eights kind of naturalistic speech, you know, and that tells you something about what's going on in their head. Now, there are other eights who won't use war metaphors who, uh, or there are threes, for example, use sports metaphors. Uh, you know, the, it's, it's sort of like a, things are like a game. But if you're an eight, you might, you might also see yourself as a, an animal in a extreme environment. I need to be the biggest lion in the jungle, that kind of thing. And there'll top be top dog. Anim- top dog. And uh, one that I kept hearing in America for a long time from AIDS was a junkyard dog. Mm, yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm tough guarding. And scrappy. Yeah. I'm tough and scrappy, except I'm guarding <laughs> junk. Mm. So that, that, <laughs> that, that kind of materializes as a contradiction after a while. So when an eight notices that those analogies, those metaphors, that way of thinking is starting to arise, what might be the strategy that you would suggest from your experience or within NLP that you could work with that? What I tried to do is get them closer to their uh, vulnerable, sensitive side Mm. and uh, integrated a little more and resolve the misunderstanding of their defenses. Now, you you could say that about a lot of Enneagram styles, that they misunderstand the purpose of their own defenses. Another way to put it is that their defenses got going in a different time and place and uh, have been carried forward in time. But in that carry forward, they're, you know, they're still reacting out of a dilemma that uh, once was really acute for them. And they're you know, trying to suppress something else within themselves, but getting them closer to that and getting to understand that their way of protecting themselves has been to squash themselves. (laughs) And usually they're horrified. And also they start to get uh, imagery, which I work with a lot, imagery of a young self. A lot of times it would be maybe an inner child. I I, I don't really use that phrase, but Certainly, something that is representative of what they went through earlier earlier in life. And why don't and you use the inner child? I'm curious why you don't like that. Because it's a, it's a cliche, and inner children start wars. Mm, okay. Are you? Um, how, what, what's your relationship to? Have you? Um, internal family systems is quite the rage these days, and we have these parts. And so, I've been really curious about looking at what are common, you know, managers and common firefighters, like within different Enneagram types. And I'm curious if you've looked at that at all and have any thoughts about that. To to me, that would be getting carried away with the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not something I would bother with because it would be contaminated by observer bias. Mm. Yeah. Um, Which, Which observer, the person observing or the outside coach observing? The person well, the outside coach observing, I guess. Okay, if you go got it. Generalize that way, then it yeah. would be somebody who knew something about the Enneagram and uh, yeah. applied it to firemen. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. Yeah. So, okay. So that's kind of what might come up in an H. Shall we take 0.9? What do you see come up in 0.9? What's the split? And what is a suggestion that we might give our nines if they notice something similar to this and how we might start to approach it? When nines are in their Enneagram style and kind of reacting without choice, and usually there's a split. This is another one where the language sort of matters in my experience. I've reframed to nines when I work with them that they're not uh, they're not asleep, they're not numb, they're not uh, soul dead, they're hiding, yeah. and that's almost always correct. And usually it's sort of uh, a kind of sense of a younger self in the chest or uh, something else that's kind of symbolic that represents the you know the nines dilemma, and then they. They'll numb themselves from the neck down and then get busy in their heads from the neck up, but they're not really mental types. They don't think real clearly uh, when they do that, when they're thinking defensively. They, they can think clearly, but when they're in their trance, they're not. And in doing that, I try and get them. One thing I do with nines is just describe the character structure, and it gets them upset. And <laughs> that's that, that's activate it, it the works. anger there. Yeah. Well, it's not just the anger because uh, underneath the anger is is sadness. Yeah. There, it's like layers of sediment. Mm -hmm. You know, the person will be up in their head, and they'll you you make a suggestion to them about a practice or a technique, and they'll they'll come back next time, and they'll say, "Well, you know that." Um, that technique was really good. And I'll bet it works for a lot of people, but it didn't work for me. Mm. Well, what the person is really saying is I stayed cut off. I yeah. stayed, you know, separated. And something in me deeper down was saying, no way. That mm. technique looks good. And that's going to expose me. And if I'm exposed, then I will re-encounter my basic assumption about the universe, which is it doesn't care. Nobody's, I don't matter. Nothing matters, that kind of thing. And so there's that, that's kind of lurking in the background. But mostly, you know, what you're, I will try to get them annoyed, but not angry necessarily. You can, they say in Enneagram books, you can get nines angry and it's good, but they can just as easily dissipate the anger or rationalize it or, you know, after, treat it like a mood and then they you know go on with dinner and their evening rituals and it it, it doesn't leave a lasting mark so better to just irritate as opposed to go for full-on anger something that they don't yeah. immediately sort of separate from yeah and i i make sure i have rapport with the person and maybe they have a sense of humor i use humor a lot uh, mm -hmm. kind of obviously and Getting the person to sort of settle within themselves to a certain extent. If you if you sort of explain the character structure, they uh, they they react right away. Uh, not every time, but a lot of the time. And what you and then you're in, you know, then you're inside. And then what you have to consider one thing is that nines have what they call an NLP and long timeline. Uh, which is to say, somebody says, I'm 
49. I have a conflict with my daughter. And then my question would be, to what age do you expect to live? Mm. And the answer is always between 85 and 110. Huh. Okay. So you're 49. You've got this dilemma with your daughter. What's your hurry? Why rush into this thing? You've got decades to deal with it. And that's essentially what the nine is saying to themselves in so many words. Yeah. And that's how you, for sure. Yeah. That's how you procrastinate. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you. How about point one? Well, with point one, uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, the critical voice and modifying that sometimes, uh, working with the the content of it or the tone of it or the location of it. A person will locate, you know, there are people who are ones and other styles who carry their mother and father around on their shoulders for their whole life. I do that. Yeah. (laughs) Working on it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of like, there's my opinion. And what would my mother say? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, Except this one's a little out of control because the critical figure Maybe it's not the mother, but it's somebody, and they're talking in a certain tone. And usually, uh, they're a little bit out of sight, uh, you know, kind of like behind or inside their head or next to their ear or something like that. I had good luck in the early days uh, uh, having ones move their critical voice down into their shoe. Mm, that's fine. And, yeah. And uh, then they could listen to it the 20% of the time that it makes sense because ones never want to get rid of their critical voice. Mm. They, they, it keep, they'll say it keeps me honest, it keeps me motivated, keeps me striving. Yeah. But then they'll say, but I wish it would shut up sometimes. Yeah. You know, and, and you start to work with that, modify that, but also it, it'll lead you into emotional waters. And the, there's the melancholy within one, you know, the connection to four kind of depends on whether they have a two wing or a nine wing, nine with a nine wing. It's a, the emotions are cooler with a one, uh, with a two wing, they're hotter usually and more interpersonal. And the, with a nine wing, it's less interpersonal and, you know, uh, zeroing in on a sense of invisibility that eights, nines, and ones all share deep down. They feel like they're not there. They feel like their needs don't count. And a friend of mine remembered as a child, she's an eight, she remembered as a child breaking her leg, uh, riding a few blocks uh, on her bike from home. And her first thought was, I have to take care of this myself. And uh, she kind of dragged herself home. Mm. And that kind of assumption that I'm on my own and uh, I have to rely on myself, uh, that that can come kind of easily depending on what's going on in the family system. Hmm. It's so interesting to me. My dad's an eight and my mom's a one. And I have noticed there's a lot of hyper-individualism also inside of myself. And I think that I just saw that modeled by both of my parents so much and yet, um, I feel like there's so much attachment in my structure that it's a real interesting, I just say tension inside to like really feel those pulls towards the att- being an attachment type, but also having two parents within which hyper individualism was so prioritized. 
So I just was hearing in the beginning how you were saying that when we can identify sort of the biographical story and how that's influencing us, that we can really start to see certain of these characteristics manifest, even if we're not coming from that center. So is, right. is that sort of how you were saying it? Yeah, yeah sort of. And uh, that that means that you have a one and an eight somewhere within you. Yes. Well, I actually mistyped as an eight when I first found the Enneagram. And people often wonder if I'm a one. But mm-hmm. I um, identify as a self-preservation three, which you know yes. sometimes looks like yeah. a one or a six. So yeah, there's a lot of that there. And I don't know if you're familiar with Andrea Isaac's emotional yeah. wheel that she does with the whammies and the, I can't remember what she calls the green. And it was interesting because I also interviewed uh, Fleming Christensen, who just wrote a book on your blind type. And it right. was interesting to see that I have a blind type in one because my mother, who's a one with a two wing sort of took over a lot of those one-ish tasks for me as we've been raising my children together. And yet those whammies of the one, the judgment is something that lives inside of me because that inner critic was modeled because I could see it towards herself and towards others. And then you sort of embody it, even if it's not your core style. Another thing about shadows and the Enneagram is if you identify certain Enneagram styles that are problematic for you, Uh, and you know, you have an automatic reaction or you have uh, some karma of some kind within that, what you're reacting to is the low side of their Enneagram style, not the high side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what, what gradually develops if you work on it is that you, you, you get a little more free each time. And then the, the high side aspects of, oh, let's say a one who can evaluate and have a, a, a compassionate sense of fairness, but also a determination to make things better. And, you know, sort of like an effective judge who can weigh the considerations of different uh, parties within a, a trial and then come up with a decision. And w- within doing that, you know, you've got a, a moral compass that can go w- with it, you know, and yeah, it's all that stuff kind of matters. Yeah, I love my sweet ones there. Yeah, that direct line of integrity. I often feel that when I'm around the Aeneas style one. So. Yeah, they re- they they mean what they say, and they're uh, they're committed in a way that to making things better somehow within their environment, or you know whether it's self preservation, whether it's an intimate subtype, or whether it's a social subtype. Mm-hmm. Usually, with a social type, they're committed to. When they're in the trance, they're committed to other people uh, improving. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> How about point two? Let's take a speak a little bit for on the point two. So my shadow is my selfishness and uh, what I label as selfishness, and that can include pretty reasonable needs uh, taking care of, you know, taking care of myself that way. But... If it's a shadow, then it gets displaced onto other people. I wouldn't say projected, it, but it is It is almost like the two comes out of themselves and, you know, sends their inner child to live with the neighbors. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's kind of like you, you come out of yourself and you focus in on somebody and you over-identify with them. Uh, their presence fills you. And you know, there's nobody home except that you're actually getting your needs met by metaphor through the through the 
what you give to the other person. Yeah, like there has to be this receiving some relationality or I feel really empty. It seems like it's um, something like that when I'm caught in the grip of my two wing. Yeah, and when you're empty, it's an indicator that uh, you've sent yourself over to the other person. Yeah, yeah. That's mm. it. That's what's empty. You know. So how do you advise twos to call that back? How do we come home to ourselves when we're in our point two energy? I have them, you know, kind of understand the the way in which they're organized. It depends on the person again, but um, a lot of times it's helpful to have them reel themselves in. Uh, you know, kind of literally do an exercise where they're thinking of somebody that they give too much to, and pulling themselves back. Yeah. And in pulling themselves back, there's a, a hesitation point before they come fully back into their body. And the hesitation point, there there needs to be a negotiation usually. And the negotiation is uh, sort of like mother and daughter or mother and son. But it has to do with allowing them, giving themselves permission to grant themselves wishes. And, but the wishes are proportionate, you know, it's sort of like the difference between kind of pseudo feeling. And if the, the, you can see two sometimes get, you know, histrionic and dramatic and the difference between that and the, the still quiet voice of the heart and the way in which you internally feel a series of quiet emotions. Yeah. They're quieter. They're real. And the overall, you know, with three, four, and two, the the broad goal has to do with becoming more real, becoming more, uh, be getting clearer and clearer about the difference between pseudo emotions and your true feelings. Yeah. Sort of like if you're an actor on a stage, you know, you have to produce the emotions relative to your character, and twos, threes, and fours can all get caught up in roles that way. And then that anything an actor might feel on stage might not be their true feelings about anything else. So they, you know, they finish their performance and then they return to their lives and uh, their, their feelings are different than the ones of their character. Yeah. I know that as a, Three with a two wing. Sometimes I have a hard time giving myself permission to actually experience my true feelings in the presence of that person that I've lost myself to a little bit. So for me, I sort of have to give myself the permission to actually withdraw and to maybe even spend some time in solitude and mm-hmm. really like turn in and allow what's ever there to just freely express. It's almost like a date with myself where I just sort of lean into like, how can I take care of myself? Like, what is this that I'm really needing right now? And what I notice is that there's just this, that disintegrated heart sort of calms itself a little bit as those emotions are just allowed free expression. But it's very difficult for me to do that in the presence of another. I notice that I often do need to make sure I get that time for self-care and really remembering that I don't have to rely on others to give me what I can connect with inside if I can really get to the place where I can access it. Well, you know, within three, you can do amazing things. 
and accomplish a lot and uh, have leadership qualities and a lack of irony, uh, a kind of idealism, uh, you know. But when you get in touch with yourself, a lot of times it helps to drop into your feelings and not just feel them, but label them. Yeah. It's almost like the ABCs of feelings. It is. That's the part that gets neglected within the the script, and somebody else could be really proficient at feelings, but then they you know they can't balance their checkbook or something. Yeah, I'm a certified trainer in nonviolent communication, and the reason I love this practice so much that I wanted to teach it is because you really start off with just feelings and needs, and the very first step is what am I feeling? And I remember when I first landed on this, and I just started naming feelings. It was Mm -hmm. as if there was like this huge heart cracking open and in the naming of the feelings, the actual felt sense of it accompanied. And that was when I mistyped as a four because I was actually feeling feelings for the first time and thinking I was this emotional wreck. And when you're a three that just never actually named them, never actually felt them, it can be very easy to be like, whoa, what is this? Whereas when I talk to my friends who live at point four, they're just like, oh yeah, that's just where we live. <laughs> it's a very uh, well, interesting thing in some ways. In in general, with three, the direction is inside, getting mm-hmm. inside yourself, getting yeah. inside your true feelings and your deeper down values. And with four, it's sort of the opposite, mm-hmm. I find. Yeah. There's some value in going into your feelings as a four, but really the direction you gradually need to move in is towards the world, not away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's different. You know, it's almost like an opposite Mm -hmm. direction to go in. Absolutely. I love how so many of the points on the Enneagram wheel, um, as I've sat with them, there's really this yin yang to so many of them, specifically if you're looking at the ones connected by arrows or at the wings, you know, I definitely feel that, you know, as a three with a two wing, I really invite myself to develop the four. And yeah, I can really feel sort of the yin yang energy as I try to embody those energies. Yeah. Well, it might take you the form of exercises like go to a graveyard and yeah. go around, read the inscriptions and gather information about what how people want to be remembered mm-hmm. and then figure out what your inscription would be. And the from the standpoint of being a three and all you accomplished, or from the standpoint of your heart and all you felt and all the the love that you experienced when you were in the world. Yeah, thank you. What rose up for me was, I think it was Jack Cornfield who said, in the end, only three things matter. How we lived, how we loved, and how well we learned to let go. And that's just a beautiful thing that when I get caught up in my structure, I always like to remind myself to come back to. Yeah. Yeah. It's something also you come up against with aging almost naturalistically. Mm, absolutely. Is that the, you know, all the things that you're attached to, all the things that you identify with, they're all going to go at some point. Mm-hmm. That's turns out to be bad news that you didn't know <laughs> when, when you were 27. You know? Yeah. But yeah. I say aging is not for I, sissies. It's not for sissies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how about uh, our sweet point five? What would we like to highlight about the split that's there and how we work with it? A lot of times 
there's there's two things. One is finding a point of anxiety that the person might have. It depends on what their problem is and what they're working on or what they know about themselves. But in doing that, you're trying to uh, find out where they're anxious. It's usually in the midline of their upper chest. And then what I'll ask them to do is to bring that, whatever that is, out, the anxiety, and give it form, see what it, see what it's like. And so it could be like one guy who was an anesthesiologist, which I thought was actually a great occupation for a five. You know, people... Definitely. You don't like, you know, you, you get tired of people kind of easily. You can knock them unconscious. But, <laughs> or I'm thinking of the anesthesiologist that's there watching. You know, the surgeon has the assertive type energy usually and is like doing the thing on the patient and the nurses are all moving around and you have the anesthesiologist and you want somebody who's watching everything because things can go bad in an instant. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of the portrait photography also mm-hmm. where somebody has a, uh, somebody could be a five and a photographer and they could really zero in on who a person is, but they're protected by the camera and the lens, mm. you know, they're, they're once removed. Also in, uh, I've taught a lot in Tokyo and occasionally you'll see on the street, a guy who has a little stand and he's carving faces into grains of rice. Mm. Wow. And it's so precise and so involved. In. Yeah. Zoomed in, so crowds will gather around him, but he ignores them completely. He's mm-hmm. just in the trance of his skill and in a kind of solitude with it. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can, I mean, it takes different forms. Not all fives are intellectuals is another way to put it. With five, a lot of times there's, like I said, there's two things. One of them is uh, evoking imagery and then empowering the imagery somehow or allowing the imagery to run a course that it needs to run, mm. that spontaneous comes from their own unconscious. So the one, one guy I worked with who was the anesthesiologist, the image that came up with him was uh, a young self who was dressed like a cowboy. I think he was from Nevada. And he was dressed like a cowboy, and he was... Uh, uh, he had fake guns and, you know, a hat and an outfit. One of the things we did was try to change the guns, since this is America, <laughs> uh, to change the guns into like uh, stun guns from uh, Star Wars or uh, Star Trek, rather, and gradually give the image more power is what you're after. And And anything else that needs to be added into it, anything else that needs to be any other resources or strengths that the person has, add those in and tell me what happens with the image, you know. And then once that's sort of built in a certain way, uh, having the person take it back inside of them. Now, somebody else, you might want to have it be disassociated, have it be out there, you know. But with fives, it's really important that it's not dissociated because that's their defense anyway. Yeah. And so bringing it, bringing it inside and inhabiting the power that goes with it. And and it'll be like social power, the power to initiate. There's a kindness in the high side of five. Uh, There's also perspective. You know, you can, 
You can, I have several friends who are fives who can zoom out of a detailed, complicated picture and then they can zoom in. Mm. Just sort of like a, you know, something you could do on the internet, but they can do it in their mind. Mm. And that ability to zoom out and zoom in gives you perspective and you can kind of, oh, like if there's a conflict going on, you can kind of float above the conflict and be in a position where maybe you help resolve it or you see both sides or so, you know, something like that. And then there's, you know, intellectual strength and the strength of uh, developing skills and boundaries, having good boundaries, which is, you know, you'll see sometimes fives and threes and fives and twos together. And, you know, the twos learn about boundaries from the five and the five learns about feelings from the two. Yeah. That kind of thing, you know. Um, Did you say threes? What do they learn? What do threes and fives learn from each other? Well, or maybe you didn't say that. Did you say you said you said fives well, and twos? Or she goes. Elsewhere? She goes out and and uh, conquers the world, and he stays home and uh, reads books and wisely advises her when she comes home, and they have a kind of teamwork that way. Mm, interesting. It's not yeah. unusual in my experience, anyway. You said not not usual or not unusual. Not unusual. Five, yeah. Three. Thank you. Although you don't want to, again, over-categorize <laughs> the uh, connections between Enneagram styles. Of and, course. Yeah. You know. And I heard you say that with a five, you don't want them to dissociate. You want them to pull it into the body. But you said with some types, dissociation might actually be a tool. Which types for which it might be a tool? Uh, fours. Ah, uh, twos okay. sometimes. But especially with fours, one one line of inquiry might be, uh, what's it like if you take this feeling or you take this mood or you you take this uh, image of yourself and put it out there and witness it rather than feel it? Yeah. You still feel it a little bit, but you don't feel it the same way. You're not totally associated into it, which is the opposite of dissociated. Yeah. No, I've, yeah, I, I, I vibe with that because when I can tell I'm in a disintegrated heart center place, if I can sort of take that and have my, my self-observing witness kind of look at it outside of myself and almost care for it like a tantruming child, that's yes. been something that's been supportive for me. Yeah. 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 And that, that'll work with, that works with fours in a slightly different way, but uh, essentially essentially similar. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And how about six? Broadly speaking, if they scare themselves, it depends on what they're working on, but there's, there's sort of two approaches to chronic fear. I find, I mean, there's more, but one is to exaggerate and intensify the fear going with it. And what I find is that if you can really do that you need to have a again rapport with the person and it helps if they have a sense of humor and what you ask them to do is to fantasize have have a a fantasy fear that they've been having but take it further this is kind of akin to imagining the worst that can happen but it's 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 in that uh, solar system but it's that that's not quite it 
what you're trying to do is have them exaggerate the fear until it turns ridiculous. Yeah. And the way that'll work is something like somebody says, um, you know, I'm afraid to ask for a raise and my boss will fire me. Mm-hmm. My eight boss, you know, or whoever it is, the six has projected their power onto. And then uh, you you kind of go with that. I'll go with, you know, well, okay. So imagine that you're fired. Now what happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm, you know, living in my apartment and I'm looking for a job, but I can't find one and I'm running out of money. Okay, uh, just go ahead and run out of money. Now what happens? And then the person says, well, now I'm out on the street, you know, and I'm begging, I'm selling pencils. And this uh, is, okay, go ahead, you know, keep selling pencils. Now it's winter and I'm starting to freeze. Okay, go ahead and freeze. Now I'm freezing to death. Okay, go ahead and freeze to death. Uh, now I'm floating out in space and I'm, I notice that there's a gigantic river of bodies, of human bodies that are flowing in a certain direction. And, I've, I, and I'm drawn into it and I have to flow with it. And I say, okay, you know, go ahead and flow with it. Now what happens? Uh, the person says, well, now all of the bodies are going into a gigantic maw, uh, uh, the mouth of this hideous cosmic beast, and they're being devoured and atomized. And I say, okay, go ahead and let yourself get devoured and atomized. And now that you're out floating in space atomized, how do you feel? And the person says, peaceful. <laughs> yeah, so you really follow that thread and just stay with the energy until it transforms into something different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just bear in mind that when sixes scare themselves, they don't go far enough. Yeah, absolutely. It almost reminds me of some of the work we do in the diamond approach where um, when I'm working with my, my teacher, it's just like, yeah, staying with that sensation of that Mm -hmm. feeling and just really being with it and breathing into it and just like watching how it, morphs and changes. And also, um, there is something about the process that you were describing. I think that sometimes sixes get stuck in that negativity. And if we can make it ridiculous enough, it's almost like it could give them some access to the seven wing to kind of buoy them a little bit when that fear is getting really heavy was what was coming up for me. Yeah. Well, it changes in any way, in Mm -hmm. some way. Another approach with chronic fear is to take it apart, to get so detailed and so obsessively specific that the thing kind of goes away, like the person can't quite get it back, you know? Yeah. So going on the notion that uh, it makes me think of the expression of uh, uh, people saying they're afraid of flying. Mm -hmm. I guess there's reasons to be afraid of flying nowadays besides the ones that the six comes up with. But usually people who work with people who are afraid of flying will say that they'll have that expression, but they mean different things by it. So some one person says, I'm afraid of flying. And what they're saying is, I'm afraid of takeoff and landing. Another is saying, I'm afraid of flying. But they're, what they're saying is, I'm afraid of turbulence. Another is saying, I'm afraid of flying. But... What it really is, is I'm a little claustrophobic and I 
don't and a little antisocial and I don't like being locked in a, a hurtling metal cylinder through space with a bunch of strangers, especially ones nowadays who are coughing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and w- when you put a finer and finer point on it, it kind of evaporates also. Mm. And uh, it it's not the goal isn't to make it go away. The goal is to give the person agency to get them in touch with their own authority, within touch with their own power, mm. and get them to realize, which is something I like about a lot of psychological approaches, and uh, it was built into NLP, which is that you're doing this. You're responsible for this. And you, you have the power that you project onto other people. Mm. So if somebody is projecting onto an eight or a one or a nine with an eight wing or a two. Uh, Usually there's a parent involved because sixes will carry their parents around a little longer than other people interject, you know, and within that, the, the person has projected some aspect of their own capacities and their own strengths and their own power and their own resources. And so you know, in the old days, they used to have this gestalt two-chair technique where somebody would have a conflict and they would sit in one chair and embody one side of the conflict and then switch over and embody the other side of the conflict. And then the two parts would kind of uh, argue or exchange back and forth, and gradually there could be a, a resolution of some kind. And in a way, that's sort of one element in in the calculation and working with sixes is how to get them into their own power, how to get them in touch with their own strength, but also uh, willing to claim it because the, the defense within it is to give away your own power uh, in order to be safe. And paradoxically, in order to be powerful, it's all a, a jumble, but you know, if you grow up around domineering people, unstable people, you know, people who target you, the tendency then is to, you know, carry it forward in time, but also to internalize their criticisms or their aggression or or whatever it is, and to use it against yourself. And the idea is if I just do this to myself, I'll be prepared for when it happens out there. Yeah, totally makes sense. Thank you. And then carry that forward in time, you know, three, four, five decades, and you're doing something kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But it's it, it's no more ridiculous than any other Enneagram style. But in the, in the theater, in your mind, you're scaring yourself in order to be strong. You're making yourself young in order to be an adult. It's very paradoxical. Yeah, but it's become the habit, and it's just what we do if we don't become conscious of it. Well, uh, conscious is one step, and then delving into it is another step, mm-hmm. and working with it, maybe going against it, maybe risking uh, is another step. You know, th- those are all uh, of one cloth, really. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And how about point seven? We've made it around the wheel. I was talking before about seven in terms of, you know, going into a pain and then coming back out again. The thing to, to emphasize, and I don't know if I did this already uh, because I'm old, uh, 
We'll uh, edit it if you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, please, thank you. Your checks in the mail. Yeah. yeah. Five, sixes, and sevens project their power specifically. With fives, it's social power. With sixes, it's uh, you know maybe existential. And with sevens, you project your power onto forces that can contain you, limit you, bore you, trap you, uh, or obligate you. And in that projection, one of the things I find is that it's quite useful with seven to, like I was saying before, kind of go near their pain. And then they come back out. I tell them a joke. And the purpose of telling them a joke is to take over their uh, defenses. Because otherwise they might rationalize, you know, they might disassociate, might start talking in abstract terms. And so I do it anyway. I do it instead. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after a little while, go back in, uh, come back out, go back in, come back out. And the reason for doing something like this is that sevens will say, I don't like pain. I don't do pain. But actually what they really mean is I'm afraid of going into my pain because I don't feel like I have the strength or power to get out of it. Yeah, it might envelop me, suck me in. Yeah. Uh, if I start to cry, I'll cry for a year. If I, you know, get depressed, I'll, uh, you know, uh, want to jump off a bridge, whatever. And uh, these are magnified fears, but they're, you know, it tells you what the person is defending against. Hmm. And then the purpose of building a bridge back and forth is to give them confidence that they can actually go near this stuff, manage it a little bit, encounter it a little bit. And include it in part of their experience because it is part of their experience, and then have more joy. Basically, I mean that's the bargain you make with them: is that you know the same nerve endings that you're preoccupying with this feeling of being trapped. Uh, those nerve endings they can also feel pleasure. Or as uh, Milton Erickson, the hypnotist, he had a client one time who had phantom limb pain. And he put him in a trance and explained to him that if he can have phantom limb pain, he can have phantom limb pleasure. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. And the absolutely. guy believed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and just recognizing this is almost like how the placebo effect will work. It's like you, you know, convince somebody and you can convince yourself. That, and, and it is true. Like we have access to all of these different experiences. So why do we trap ourselves in certain ones or imagine that there's a block and that we can't actually go there. It's a really interesting inquiry. It's based on personal history, uh, mm-hmm. usually. You know, I, I mean, the past is not the cause, but it's a context in which defenses get going. And within that context, then the, you know, the person will learn a defense or practice a defense like they practice a skill. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you practice a new skill, you practice it to the point where it drops out of your consciousness and becomes part of your system of reflexes. And it's a little bit like that. You know, they've got a well-practiced skill. But there's also, uh, crucially, in my experience, a part of the seven that feels trapped anyway. Yeah. In other words, they go into a new job and they're enthusiastic about it. But six months later, it's turning into boring drudgery and they're kind of looking forward to uh, finding a new job, you know, after that, or uh, consoling themselves with their exciting trip to Morocco that they're planning, something like that. 
But all the while, and this is often in the chest as well, but it can be other parts of the body, there's a part of the person that feels locked in a psychological closet. Yeah, absolutely. And that's who you're dealing with uh, Mm. in terms of helping them open up and helping them integrate and grow and change. Yeah. So I'm finding that when a person is actually ready to work with an Enneagram coach or a therapist or whatever modality, when they've come in contact with their pain and they've gotten brave enough actually to step in and even have a willingness to start looking, that people can really uh, get some traction and start doing beautiful things with their work. As a physician, I'm finding that there are so many people showing up just wanting a refill on that prescription, and they have no right. interest in going there whatsoever. And, you know, I've, I'm curious, like, first of all, is this what so much of our culture has come to believe is the best they can experience? Or is the trauma just so intense that there's even more support needed before we can even start touching it? And the reason I'm asking this is because I'm really interested in the use of psychedelics for enabling people to even start opening up and getting a taste of what they might be able to approach. And there's some really interesting science around the use of ketamine, MDMA, psilocybin for dealing with these very traumatized parts. And I'm just curious if you have any direct experience or opinions and how that is. What what would you like to say about that? I would like to microdose uh, psilocybin someday. Okay. Uh, but apart from that, no, I haven't had any experience with it in terms of applying it to clients. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What you're describing, though, could be also accomplished with trance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. With Breath work. I- like there's a lot of different modalities that we can use. Yeah, I'm yeah. currently in Naropa University's psychedelic medicine program, and I just have so many patients that have really big blocks to even turning towards things that I'm really curious. And I personally plan to collect some information on how different Enneagram types even experience different psychedelics and which ones may be opening up certain doorways to trauma that uh, people just haven't had a willingness to explore. So I'll keep you posted. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, if I could add something to that, you're talking Please. about time. You're not talking about people. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I have some habits That's of speech I'm still working on. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. I don't mean to criticize your speech. What I'm saying is uh, that that's really important to be mindful. It wouldn't necessarily be type delineated or okay. it might be, you might discover something yeah. or you might not. I yeah. Mean, I'm really curious. I'm not sure. I have no idea. That's why I'm kind of quizzing people that may or may not have had experience either within themselves or through colleagues or clients. And I I do believe there will be some patterns. I just don't know what they are. Yeah. Well, it'd be be good to explore and something to be, to stay open with, I guess. I mean, that is sort of a challenge with the Enneagram is when you meet someone encountering the person rather than the type. You know, yeah. it's and the the type part comes in afterwards, but and maybe makes some of their behavior make sense. But I don't I've worked with this thing since 1980. And sometimes somebody's Enneagram style jumps out at me. And sometimes it's just a clue. 
it's a, a a clue and you register it as a clue and maybe it turns out to have some relation to what you eventually discover uh, or the person eventually discovers their core Enneagram style. And in in doing that, it's, I don't know, the, chal- the challenge for me anyway is to stay open and to, it always reminds me of a, a Chinese formula for painting bamboo. which is, uh, you know, most art students in China, one of the things, one of the motifs is painting bamboo. And uh, when you're preparing to paint bamboo, the recommendation is think about bamboo, read about bamboo, obsess about bamboo, talk to other people about bamboo, go out in a bamboo forest and stand there and sway with the bamboo and become bamboo. And then right before you go to paint, forget all about bamboo. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Well, that sounds like a beautiful place that we could close today, Tom. I really appreciate you taking this time. And I think people are really going to enjoy this episode because we really gave some practical ways that we can approach these different Aeneas style characteristics and how we can work on it. So I really hope I'm looking forward. I'm enrolled in the class that you and Russ are going to teach. And one mm-hmm. of the things I'm just enjoying, this is my first time that I've really gotten to spend with you. So just getting to know your mm-hmm. sense of humor and um, the fun way that you kind of bounce around these different uh, metaphors and imagery and really bring it to life for us. I really appreciate that. And I'm really excited to see you and Russ work together. If you're enjoying these episodes, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at social at I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice, including typology, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Please visit my website at karenancemd.com to schedule a free 30-minute consultation if you'd like to work with me in any way. We also have the opportunity for free classes. 